if he comes back over that rail again with those guns in his hand, I'm going to shoot him. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 51 of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. The Squad Room is a podcast, the podcast, for law enforcement officers and first responders who want to develop, maintain, and optimize their physical, mental, and emotional fitness. I'm an 11-year veteran of a sheriff's department here in Southern California, and The Squad Room is my journey as that veteran to try and stay and get, well, get and stay healthy. In law enforcement, we are all tactical athletes, and my goal is to learn the best practices of experts and how I can apply them to my daily life. I'm out there looking for force multipliers to take me to the next level. I talk to other cops, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, professional athletes, cardiologists, doctors, uh, meditation experts, you name it, and of course some of the best strength and conditioning experts on the planet. Now before we get into this episode, uh, who my guest is today, I want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash the squad room. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or your MP3 player. If it's a slow shift or a long commute, audiobooks are a great way to stay alert and keep your mind engaged during some of the toughest hours, and even just signing up for the free trial helps really support the show. That's audibletrial.com forward slash the squad room. For show notes and links to other items discussed in this episode, you can go to thesquadroom.net forward slash episode 51. All right, so my guest this episode uh, is a, someone who has become a friend of the show, an FOS, uh, and a friend of mine. Uh, I consider him a friend um, over the last year or so, uh, Sergeant Rick Berkmeyer of the Scottsdale Police Department in Arizona. Rick uh, has been a super early supporter of the show. He's reached out early on, and we've kept in touch. And Rick even has his own podcast uh, about uh, fitness and, and health in law enforcement called 40 caliber fitness so you can search itunes for that uh i've actually been on his show uh was a guest on his show and was uh humbled to be asked to be on it and we've conversed back and forth about a variety of topics shared tips and tricks on podcasting all that but um recently he shared a story with me that uh, i asked if we could share on the show and he agreed and um and so he came on to talk about uh um, a shooting that he was involved in so uh, this is something that we'll be featuring more and more of uh, throughout uh, the, the upcoming episodes for the show is um, a first-person narrative account of what it was like to go through some sort of critical incident, whether that's a shooting or um, uh, an on-duty injury or um, response to an active shooter, major disaster kind of thing, that sort of stuff. I want to get perspective from all these other peop- these different people. The goal of that is, of course, and something I hadn't mentioned in the intro was that uh, the squad room, part of our, our, our goal here is also to uh, work on our leadership skills, mine included. And I've heard, talked on this show before about how we are all leaders. All of us who wear a badge are de facto leaders in our community. And that doesn't mean that you need stripes or bars or stars to be a leader. Uh, there's plenty of guys on the front line and on uh, line officers who are the leaders in their agencies and, um, and also the leaders in their community. Uh, I don't have to uh, give you too many detailed descriptions for you to think about how your community members look at you to solve problems, and they look at you as an example and as the lighthouse uh, for their needs. So I, I want to talk about these stories not because they're salacious or because they're, uh, they'll boost ratings maybe or whatever, but the point is is that if we can share these things that we've all been through, and if I can share something with someone in um, England, for example, who's listening... Uh, with somebody who went through an experience in Scottsdale, Arizona, 
that maybe we can help uh, understand each other a little better. We can understand how our tactics are different. We can understand uh, things to learn from other someone else's experience and, uh, and so on. And to give you an example of that, I'll tell you uh, a true story. In the time between when Rick and I recorded this episode and when I'm talking now and when this episode has been released, uh, my department was involved in an officer-involved shooting. And uh, in talking, I wasn't there, uh, but many of my uh, the deputies that I, I would say that I am uh, closest to were. And it was at my station. Um, it was just happened that it was my night off. It was one of those things. It could have been my night, but it wasn't. And in talking with the deputies who were on scene or who, who, who actually were involved in this, um, I reached back to my conversation here with Rick and, and I pulled bits from our conversation and um, shared some of that with them. And it directly benefited my ability to relate to them, to remind them about the uh, importance of um, their sleep and the, the, that it's okay if they're going to have uh, mental thoughts of this for a while and that that's normal. And I don't know if I would have thought of that necessarily in the moment talking to them had I not just had this conversation with Rick. So that's an exact, an exact example of why I want to do this and why I want these kinds of episodes to be out there so that we can all learn uh, tips, tactics, training, uh, briefing materials for all those sorts of stuff. So uh, if you have a story you want to share, you can uh, send, send me a quick email at garrett at the squadroom.net. We'd love to hear from you uh, and would love to feature some, of, some more of these types of stories. And uh, let me know if you think you have any comments or questions uh, about uh, what we talk about here today. Uh, but my guest, Sergeant Rick Berkmeyer, Scottsdale PD. Sergeant Rick Berkmeyer, Scottsdale PD, welcome uh, to the squad room. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, uh, if anyone happens to recognize your voice, uh, they uh, might also listen to your own podcast. 40K. Yeah, pro- I, I think I'm the only one that listens to it and just downloads it over and over again to pad my stats. <laughs> well, Sergeant Bergmeyer here has been a, one of the very earliest supporters of the squad room, uh, someone who reached out early on, uh, threw a lot of support our way, a lot of encouraging words, uh, and eventually started your own podcast and uh, for, called 40 Caliber Fitness, Yep, which I've been a guest on. Thank you. That was always yeah. fun. So. Uh, this is a an experience to turn the tables and uh, and share with you. And uh, as I said, you were an early supporter. And one of those ways that you supported was uh, I recently, you know, sent out an email to uh, our tribe asking for people who are willing to share their stories about an an on duty critical incident of some sort, whether that was a response to a major disaster, an officer involved shooting, uh, a medical issue on duty. And you uh, you responded and, and told a great story about um, an event that you were involved in. So I want to get to that, and that's going to be the purpose of our of our talk today is talking about your trip into the kill zone. Sure. Um, but I always like to ask other cops uh, when I get them on the show uh, or when I see them in person. I want to I want you to tell me about why you decided to become a cop in the first place. Uh, it was something that was in the back of my mind, not really in the forefront when I was in. Uh when I was in college and kind of thought about it, wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, at the time my uh, dad worked for Honeywell, worked on jet engines and I had worked summers there and, uh, got a job there after college and it was really kind of unfulfilling. And, uh, I thought, you know, what am I going to do? You know, when I look back at my life, when I'm 50, you know, what am I going to say and what kind of impact will I have? And, uh, that 
the thought kind of started pushing to the the forefront of my mind and a buddy of mine um, that's uh, co-hosted on our podcast, my uh, friend Big Dave, he said, uh, hey, I just tested for or I'm going to test for Phoenix PD. Like, hey, I've I've been thinking about it and it's kind of been running in the back of my mind. And then uh, September 11th happened and uh, I tested that was on a Tuesday. I tested that Saturday and uh, went through the process, um, ended up getting an offer from Phoenix an offer from Tempe PD and I was in a, another couple processes and then I accepted with Tempe PD and then it just hit me that I, I don't know if I'm ready for this and I chickened out and withdrew and uh, sat on it for a little bit longer and um, then the following year um, just the timing was right and did a lot of soul searching it was like this is this is what I need to do and uh, tested with Scottsdale and as they say the rest is history. That's interesting that you you had a moment of uh, of self doubt there. What what was yeah. it that you were worried? Uh, how old were you, and what what made you think that you weren't prepared for this? Uh, I was twenty five, yeah. and so I ended up getting hired by Scottsdale starting when I was twenty six. But twenty five, man, you're I didn't even start feeling like a grown up until I was probably <laughs> thirty three, thirty four, yeah. and uh, <laughs> I mean I was just a kid that uh, I, I stayed. I lived at home when I played or when I was in uh, college and played football just because my my focus was on trying to graduate and, and they were, you know, gracious enough to, to let me just focus on school and football at the time. And, you know, I, I moved out of my house, um, or I moved out of my parents' house and moved into my own house like three months before September 11th. So I'd been on my own for three months supporting myself and then decided, well, I'm going to take this big undertaking. And, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I just kind of chickened out and I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm ready for this and I'm not going to get involved with it until I know in my heart of hearts that, uh, that I'm, I'm ready to, to face these things. So took a year of some, you know, just kind of looking in the mirror and okay, I'm ready. And you know, I put in and just went from there. I had an interesting, similar situation. You know, I, I didn't start until, uh, I I didn't get an offer until I was 27 and I had started the process about the same time, about 25. Yeah. And I was working, uh, in the film and music industry. I was a, I was a marketing executive and I had that same, crisis of confidence you could call it yeah uh, but i was already in the academy <laughs> and, uh, oh. <laughs> and i well actually it was the first day you know so uh, i remember the first day of the academy having that same thought and i almost realizing, made it there i was i was uh we had a meeting at like tempe pd like on a wednesday or thursday and we we're supposed to start that following monday mm-hmm. so i actually met the uh the other guys i was supposed to go to the uh the academy with and it hit me right then i'm like I, i'm not ready for this right now you know, yeah, twenty five. I mean, what do you know? You're you're a kid. Oh, totally. And and it's only with hindsight I think you realize that some yeah. in some ways too. I, yeah, I, I I realized you know I'd lived this kind of cushy life with no discipline and no yep. needed discipline. There was nobody uh, holding over me uh, to to make me do the right thing or follow the right path. And I realized at twenty seven on day one of the academy that I had probably just made a horrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, yeah, it all worked real out real quick. Yeah, and I mean, for me, I didn't have anything to fall back on. Uh, I'd already quit my job. Uh, I'd, I'd, bur- I'd quite literally probably burned those bridges by just applying for uh, a law enforcement position to begin with. So it's not like I could yeah. just go back on, on Tuesday and be like, oh, never mind, guys. <laughs> uh, I was kind of stuck there. And luckily, I think being between a rock and a hard place in my, my, my events was, you know, was a good thing. I learned a lot out of it. But so okay. So you you, you took a year. You eventually ended up with Scottsdale. What was it though that was that you were looking for in law enforcement that you weren't finding in the private sector? What would you say when you 
50 you wanted to look back and see what you contributed. What was it that you were hoping to contribute? Just make a difference to one person, to five people, to 20 people, to whatever it was. Um, that was, you know, my dad uh, served in the Marine Corps in Vietnam, and he was a firefighter in Michigan before we um, family moved out to Arizona. And it, there was always just something about that service that uh, that kind of, you know, stuck in the back of my head that I, I need to be doing something better. You know, I, I tried to play football in college and played a couple years in junior college and then walked on at Arizona State. And uh, that just football was cool, but I wasn't good enough to keep to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't the way I wanted to kind of make a mark. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to be able to go to bed at the end of the day and, and know that something I did was worthwhile to somebody. And, uh, I don't know, just kind of that whole, uh, you know, you want to do what you can in your community. Um, sure. I, I thought that I could make a bigger difference here than, you know, joining, uh, the military. Cause I, I considered that like, I'm sure a ton of people did after September 11th. And I just figured that, uh, you know, this is, this is a way to, to make a bigger impact, uh, at home. Mm-hmm. Again, I had the same experience. I, I spent yeah. several years after nine eleven thinking about what I should be doing and having that, uh, that quandary and, and realizing that military wasn't for me, but that I could probably provide more value in law enforcement. Yeah. So you're in Scottsdale. Describe Scottsdale to people that aren't from Arizona. The, what's the size of the city? You're right outside, um, you're in the Phoenix area, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. East Valley, just east of Phoenix. Um, we are a long, skinny city. I think we're, I want to say, like at least forty-five miles long. It's oh wow. We 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 have four districts now, and they're very. I think they're very different um, from each other. They're um, they're very unique unto themselves. Our southern districts are. I mean, it's you know we run right into Tempe. We're just north of uh, Arizona State. Uh, you know, you can hear the fireworks from the football game from uh, the station. I work out of our southern district. Um, our district two is a huge uh, nightlife. We're probably the biggest uh, nighttime entertainment district in the West outside of Las Vegas. Um, tons and tons of bars and restaurants and events. Uh, last time the Super Bowl came into town, I think there were 30 or 40 sanctioned events by the NFL, and all but three of them were hosted in Scottsdale. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, ESPN came. Um, I think when they were here, what was it, like 08 when the Super Bowl was here? ESPN came and they set up and broadcasted for a week. And uh, District 3 is mostly residential as you go further north. And then District 4 has Westworld where we host uh, Barrett Jackson. And we just uh, finished hosting um, the Phoenix Open, the Waste Management Phoenix Open Golf Tournament. So, yeah, it's uh, special events. We're in the special event season now and it's it's huge. So what's your population? I think it's right around 225,000 or something like that, 250,000. So, so basically, like, a, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, like a, a pretty good-sized city on top of having all of the, the business and retail and entertainment yeah. lifestyle events. Yeah, and then there's the Scottsdale Airport, and there's a, the air park has a ton of businesses up north, and you know that kind of brings its own unique problems just with traffic and then you know bad guys at night you know, snooping around down there trying to break into businesses. And they're yeah. all – all the districts are – they're – Similar but different. You know, every every place has their problems, and uh, you know we're no different. And, what's and the, so it's a lot of transient folks kind of coming in with the bars and you know traffic and the air park and that kind of stuff. And what's the uh, population of the greater Phoenix area? We're like the I think I read Phoenix is like the sixth biggest metro area in the country. 
I don't believe it. It's I mean, yeah, behind, I'm just trying to yeah, get people Chicago, that picture. Chicago, LA, got, Miami, DC, New York, Chicago. It's yeah. You've got uh, yeah, because you've got I mean, Tempe's a big city. Scottsdale's a good sized city. Phoenix is huge, um, and you've also got I mean, Phoenix is a very as a stronghold of the cartels. Yeah. Uh, in terms of drug trafficking and all that too, so you've got a, there's a lot of action basically going on in that in that area, and lots of uh, lots of gangs and and those sorts of issues. Does Scottsdale have a gang issue? Not necessarily. Uh, we don't have like a homegrown gang issue. Yeah. Um, there's some, you know, there's a couple clicks here and there, and it was worse a while ago. But uh, especially with the bars, and I haven't worked nights in a couple years now. But um, I worked, spent majority of my career working that area. Um, when I was an officer and then I went back to it right after I promoted. So there's a lot of kind of transient gang activity that will come through depending on the nightclub and depending on the promoter. Um, and so we, we're pretty good about, we had a lot of, uh, a lot of directed activity that we were just, you know, basically, Hey, this is, this weekend is this club and somebody litters, they're going to jail and, (laughs) you know, Noise ordinance. We have noise ordinance for uh, for car stereos, the, the certain distance and how loud it can be, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it, it's a quality of life issue for the hotels and stuff down there. And you know, we were pulling guns and dope. And like I said, it's it's just like pretty much anywhere else. But the the nightclub kind of sucks those folks in on yeah. you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Totally does. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the assignments you've had uh, during your time? I've been uh, I've been pretty straightforward. I worked uh, patrol um, for was it five or six years. Went and spent a year in ISB. That was not my cup of tea. I'm I am not suited to sitting in the office and working caseload. What's ISB? Um, our, our investigative services bureau. I okay. was an auto crimes detective, and uh, not to toot my own horn or anything, but I was probably one of like the bottom third detectives. Like I made a couple <laughs> cases, but that was. I was not very good at it. <laughs> it was not a good match. <laughs> um, so I came back to the road and uh, I've been a firearms instructor since I think 08, 08 or 09, a rifle instructor since 09 or 10, been a fitness instructor. And I was uh, pretty heavily involved in teaching before uh, I promoted. And I promoted uh, January of 2011. And I've been on patrol. I worked uh, uh, weekend midnights downtown and then weekend kind of mid watch. And now, now I'm down in our southern district on uh, day shift. So you mentioned getting promoted in 2011. So when you got promoted, like before you got the stripes, before you went out that first night or first day of, of patrol as a sergeant, what did you think was going to be the hardest part of the job of being a sergeant, being a supervisor? A lot of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've told I've told plenty of people in our department that I think that there's a um, – Supervision, leadership, and management are three completely unique and different things. Absolutely. And we, we run into the problem, not just in law enforcement, uh, but everywhere, of using those terms interchangeably. Mm-hmm. It happened when I was at Honeywell. You know, I, I see it you know, elsewhere outside of, uh, outside of law enforcement. And so I thought that was going to be a big thing, that you can be a really good leader and a poor manager. Um, you can be a good manager and a good supervisor, but a poor leader. So... I thought kind of the one of the biggest issues was going to be kind of marrying all three of those. And um, the other one was, you know, I'd, I had been an officer for eight years. And now to be a supervisor of guys that were senior to me by, you know, 10 years, mm-hmm. that was that was going to be an issue. It, it changes. I mean, you, you try to say that you're not going to change as a supervisor, but, you know, you're going to and in your heart of hearts, you can still be the same person and still stand for the same things. But some, some things do have to change. Like 
you know, when you're an officer, you can go out to choir practice after, um, after work and go have beers with your buddies. But the supervisor, you can stop by for a beer, but then you got to leave. You know, it's, it's a different dynamic because I can't go, not that I've been drunk in the last 15 years because God, I couldn't handle it, but, um, you can't go get hammered with somebody and then have to, um, write them an investigation and, um, give them discipline the next week. So there has to be that line. So I thought that was going to be real interesting to figure out, like with your buddies, especially like how the line worked and how those relationships stayed, um, how they changed and how do you try to keep the good parts good. And, and so far it's been, I work with some good folks, man. So everybody's taking pretty good care of me. And, um, you know, we have, we have pretty good staff and we have pretty good officers and, and, uh, it's just worked. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I, I, I totally agree with you that there's, Supervision, management, and leadership are three entirely different things. I, I, you're 100% dead on, too. I think that they get mixed up. They yeah. get intertwined. They get confused. Um, what's frustrating sometimes, too, you know, like I'm sure you probably experienced this, like they get confused from above you, too. So mm-hmm. uh, they might be confusing your leadership with your management or your supervision and trying to keep those things separate. But um, And you're right. Do you, I think you're always the same person when you when you promote you, but you do have to address, you have to change your relationship with people. Like you say, you can't be that. Not everybody's the same person though. There are, I've seen, um, and I've been upfront about this too. I don't think this is going to be a surprise to anybody listening from my department, but I've seen people that have promoted and they've went, or when they decide they want to promote and they change and their relationships change and how they treat people changes. And, you know, I tell people, people, I don't know why, but people come to me for advice during the, for the sergeant process. And, and, uh, I I tell them, be you, you know, either get hired for being you or not hired for being you, but be able to look yourself in the mirror. Yeah. I've I've seen people that, and I've heard what they have done and um, who they talk to and how they, you know, their plan and how they associated themselves with certain people to get promoted. And I'm like that, that wasn't you six months ago. So, you know, I, everybody at work calls me Burke and I have been Burke from day one. I've, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I stand by my ideals and, and yeah. I try to at least be respectful and, you know, sometimes I'm blockheaded and sometimes I have to eat my words and I, I'm okay with that. Cause that's, I'm passionate about what I think. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, man, I'm I'll own it. And I've, I've had to own it a couple of times and it sucks, but it's better to say, Hey, you know what? I, I was wrong on this and my bad. Yeah. Well, I think when you, when you encounter the people you were just describing that the change, they, there was one of two things going on. Either that was actually them and they were, playing possum or, or, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing, so to, so to speak. Uh, yeah. Or they weren't prepared for the job mentally. And, again, we talk about crisis of confidence. You know, they collapse internally and yeah. they fall back on what they think uh, a, a leader, manager, a supervisor should be. And they always are going to probably gravitate towards those negative examples. Because if you're gravitating towards the positive examples, I think you have confidence in yourself and you know the difference. Yep. You know what I mean? All right. So anyway, so there's a lot to take on as a new sergeant, right? I mean, it's like you just said, we just chat- chatted about some of the bigger issues. But there's lots of different stuff that goes into being a new sergeant. And uh, But there's also a lot of great things. What's your, f- what's your favorite thing about being a sergeant? Uh, and maybe also, is it different, you know, from when you first got promoted to now? How, is that has that changed, or is it? What's what's your favorite thing? Uh, there's a couple. It's there are some things that uh, that I like when I first promoted that 
let me take, let me rephrase that. There, there are certain things now that I couldn't have seen when I first promoted. Like, so now I have, uh, a couple of my guys that have worked on my squad that have, uh, won, uh, I share an office with them. He was, uh, my OIC on my very, very first squad. And he just promoted within the last year. So kind of seeing that and seeing the, you know, the stuff that I have been able to glean from other people and, you know, and learn on, you know, podcasts, you know, like yours and the folks that you've been able to talk to and kind of share that with, with my team and, you know, leaders that I've worked with that I've really respected that I've taken on kind of some of, um, their ideals or, um, really identified with it and pass it on. It's, it's cool to see somebody else when kind of the light clicks and they're like, yeah, that's, you put that into words or, you know, you're able to, to have a conversation and briefing about, you know, uh, I'm passionate about carrying your gun off duty and not every cop does. But when you start talking about, Hey, why tell me why you don't and tell me why you do. And you kind of see that light go on when people start, you know, looking at different perspectives. I'm not necessarily trying to change your mind. I'm just telling you, this is what the argument is. Mm-hmm. So it, it's cool to see. It's cool to see a team come together and stop caring about themselves kind of individually. And, um, it's amazing how much can get accomplished when you don't care who gets the credit. And when you get, you know, five, six, seven guys and gals that are on board with that, you wreck shop. I mean, <laughs> we go out and, you know, folks that need warnings, get warnings, folks that get tickets, get tickets and folks that need to go to jail, they go to jail. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that's just, it, it's really cool to see, uh, you know, a squad, you know, squad unity. I've been on some broken squads before and, and, uh, it's, all of my squads have been. I've I've had the fortune of working with some really good people uh, throughout my career. Some of the best squads I've ever been on, and uh, it's cool. That that's probably the good the best thing is having, you know, that kind of single minded focus where everybody's on the same page, and we all kind of see things the same way. What's important? What's kind of the small stuff and you know bigger picture? Because it's not about us. I mean, we don't take this job to be rich. We take this job to make a difference. And uh, you know, it's cool when you hear about one of your guys telling you about what one of your other guys did that they won't take the credit for it mm-hmm. you know so hey so and so he sat with me for eight hours today and showed me how to run pond history and you know showed me how to change my submittal forms and showed me how to do this and that but uh that officer will never take credit for it because he's like eh quiet professional that's just what i'm supposed to do right so right. that's that's cool stuff all right so you're six months into being a sergeant uh New, still new to the job, right? Oh, Six yeah. months. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the day of June tenth, two thousand eleven. What were you doing that day? Uh, it was actually in particular right around that time. That was uh, towards getting towards the end of my shift. We worked until it was seven o'clock in the morning, and uh, I, I remember everything about that morning. I remember talking with my boss. He had gone off duty and came in, and we were talking about some some paperwork stuff. And I was sitting at my desk, and I had an officer at the time that was having having some, uh, uh, just some troubles being an officer, just, you know, officer safety was a huge concern. And so, uh, I heard her go out on a call and I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing anything else. I need to get out of the office. So I swung by that, uh, that stop and, you know, talked to her and things were good and drove around the you know city for a few minutes and ah, I'm going to head back to the station and finish this paperwork. And two of my cops went to, uh, to a, like a 911 check welfare at a hotel. All the units for 911 check welfare beat 5101 North Scottsdale Road at the Clarion Hotel, room number 2043. Like, ah, 
I'm just going to swing by there. I'm close. So I go and sat in the parking lot and, and, uh, I ended up calling, uh, he was actually a buddy of mine before I promoted. He had more time on than I did. And, uh, so called him on the phone and, um, kind of got the rundown of, you know, what this guy's doing and they weren't really, really able to make contact. And we have an open line on callback. The front desk employee said that it came from the room number 2043. Have not been able to actually get through to the room at 438. Um, as I'm sitting in my truck on the phone with Jason, um, I hear gunshots go off and I hear him yell, oh shit. And I dropped my phone, bailed out of my truck and ran and went, dear God, I have six months on. What in the hell am I getting into? Five one zero one North Scotts Road, room number two zero four three, PD one is restricted. Hey, where's the room from your car? I actually remember thinking that, like, here we go, pucker factor. <laughs> so this is at the this is at the uh, Clarion Motel at the corner of Scottsdale and Orange Blossom, right? Ex- yeah, fifty one oh one North Scottsdale Road. It's the uh, Days Hotel now. Days Hotel. So explain the the layout, of the, the, like the tactical layout of, of this hotel or motel. Uh, for the audience, please. Yeah, so it's uh, actually it's uh, wasn't even Orange Blossom. I think it's Chaparral. It's a northeast corner and huge. So you you go in northbound and northeast corner, you turn into a parking lot. There's kind of a restaurant front office, and then the northern bank of buildings is you know two story, like sixties or seventies construction, like block and concrete. And I just ran into the courtyard. I had no idea where where they were, um, and I still remember the room. It was two zero four three. So I run into the courtyard as I'm 20 yards away, 30 yards away from my truck. I remember, uh, I remember kind of stopping and slowing down going, should I go back for my rifle? But I need to get to them. But should I go back for my rifle? And then I saw my cops and we touched base real quick and made sure that we were good. And looking at this giant complex, I'm like, okay, there's three of us and everybody's coming. Uh, we should probably get eyes on the door. <laughs> I need units from D3, I need units from D1. Um, he shot around uh, outside of his room, two rounds, outside of his room at our officers. So uh, we're on the northeast side. We can get people to go from the south on the east, uh, long guns and helmets, and then we'll figure out what we have. So well, I, can, I can kind of fill in the blanks as we obviously know what happened now, but we this uh, – Guy who ended up being, uh, and I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't deserve it, but drunk, uh, high on meth. Um, he goes to the hotel, asks to get put into a room. They they put him in this room. And for whatever reason, he said that he was, uh, and we found this out later after, because uh, he didn't end up dying in the, the process. So once uh, they had sentencing, he wanted to talk to the two officers that were involved, and uh, he and they were game for it. And, uh, he basically told them that the, his voices told him that they, he needed to kill a pure soul. So he goes into this room. He had, uh, two stolen guns from his family and he barricaded himself in the very back of this room and called nine one one, called the front desk and said there was a bomb in his phone and just a lot of gibberish. It was, you know, everybody gets those kind of calls, you know, somebody that's, you know, schizophrenic or hearing things. And so you go and see what you can do, but so it was an know, ambush. June, yeah, straight it, it up was. ambush. And it was uh, you know June in Arizona, and it's five o'clock in the morning. It was still you know like a hundred degrees, so the air conditioner's blowing. So 
Um, so the door faces north on the second level of this uh, building, and it's a steel door, thank God. And to the, I think it was to the right or the left of it, one side of it was glass, and curtains are drawn. So my guys go up there, and they're knocking on the door, and they could hear him talking, but they couldn't figure out what he was saying. So I don't know whether it was, uh, and I won't give their NAS names, but yeah. Jason or Allison, I don't know which which one of them decided that, hey, we're going to stand away from the window on the other side of the door where there's block, but they were you know, leaning in to try and hear this guy. And he, uh, I don't know how many rounds were fired, but he started sending rounds through the door and the window. And confirming he shot rounds at us through the room, but we have not fired back. And uh, the door caught the rounds, and then the ones that obviously hit the window went through. And um, Allison got on the air, and, and uh, I don't know if you've listened to the audio yet, but she got on the air and said 998, and um, they booked it. They retreated down to the courtyard where I met them. And we were only down there for literally 10 seconds and made sure that we were all okay and tried to put a plan together quickly. <laughs> but yeah, it's a big, big complex. So you you, be, you, you backed off the room uh, by that time you met them down there on the first floor. Yeah. Um, you kind of mentioned what you remember thinking about when you were running to the room and the, the, the kind of acknowledgement of the pucker factor there. Yeah. Once you got to your guys, what what was your thought process? Uh, initially, once I found out they were okay, my thought process we needed we need to lock this down and get these folks and the surrounding rooms out of them because I didn't realize at the time that that place is built like a bunker. Um, so my thought was, well, if he starts firing rounds, you know, through drywall, or if he, what if he kicks in another door? So um, I sent Jason and Allison back off to the north side, and they were kind of northwest of the room where they had a they were behind a car and they had eyes on it. I got up to the second level to the southern side of the building because figured if he, you know, got out of that room and he could go south, we didn't have any containment. It was just the three of us. So at least we had both sides, you know, visually we could figure out if they could see if he left the room and I could see if he moved south. And I was trying to direct units in, but we had uh, – there's another hotel at 5001 Scottsdale Road and then 5101 Scottsdale Road, and that got confused in a hurry. So – um. Yeah, so I got on the, the air, and you can hear it in the, the audio that my voice is, you know, it's amped and trying to get resources from all the other districts. And, you know, I tried to get radio to get these folks to evacuate and run towards me, run away from that room so they didn't cross, a, uh, cross the, the threshold where he was, had already fired off some rounds. That was my biggest my biggest concern immediately was, uh, was getting those folks out and then trying to hold him into a room. But yeah, I had no idea. Like I said, six months on, and one of my guys ended up coming up with me, and he was kind of stacked over the top of me. We're looking down this hallway, and I looked to him, and I said, I have no idea how the hell we're going to lock down this entire hotel. Thanks, 71. Uh, I left my long gun in the truck, so I need a, a long gun up here, a long gun on the south. We can get a position where we can get eyes on, and a long gun to the back. And so did the, did the rooms open into a courtyard? Uh, the were they hallways? side of that building. So think of a big rectangle. So the inside of the rectangle opened into the courtyard, mm -hmm. the outside of the rectangle opened out to the parking lot and he was on the outside, the very, very North side. And so, yeah, I was trying to work through it. And, uh, I remember there's something that clicked that, um, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but at some point I just got on the air and took a deep breath and said, okay. And then just started you know, I need these people here. I need these people here and tried to get a hold of Lieutenant who was way up in um, our North district and he was coming down.
shot rounds at us through the room, but we have not fired back. We got additional shots fired. 10 4. Four shots fired. Alright, is he shooting out of the back window? He's shooting from the room right now. It appears to be going through the door. Okay, um. Patrol 44, unless you have an issue, I want everybody that we have down here now because I'm not sure how we're going to contain this if he keeps firing from this uh, fortified position. And uh, just tried to do the best we can with what we had, and it, the situation moved quick, so we didn't really have to stay still for long. What were your priorities at that point once you'd gotten eyes on the front door? Again, my priorities were uh, what I was thinking was that we needed to get people evacuated and then – um, we didn't have any long guns, and this was a long hallway, and there was no way – we didn't know what the um, – or I didn't know what the, um, the immediate area around his room was. He ended up being like two feet from the walkway in a stairwell. Uh, if you walk out of his room, uh, you could turn to the right and walk either continue eastbound or you could walk right down the stairwell and get to the ground. I knew it was around there somewhere, but I didn't exactly know, so I was trying to get um, at least coverage to the south, so if he did come out, we could have – you know, we could at least have some kind of uh, perimeter. And then my uh, officer that came up with me, he asked me if he uh, if I wanted my rifle. And so I gave him my keys and said, yep, go get my gun, come back here. So at least we had – I knew we had long guns coming, but we didn't have any there. Um, so, yeah, my, my first priority was trying to get those folks evacuated, which looking back on it maybe wasn't the best thing on how the uh, – how secure that um, construction was. Um, and then getting coverage on the room and then getting long guns up. At, even with a quarter million people in your population, yeah. a, a full-time SWAT team is probably unrealistic, right? So what sort of resources did you have available to you at that moment? Um, we have a full-time element, um, our special assignments unit, um, and they're always on call, and then our decentralized guys are on call. And then we have, um, you know, there's... Some kind of, you know, we have some gear in the supervisor trucks, and then we have uh, our rifle program. So we have, you know, officers and detectives that um, that aren't necessarily SWAT, but do get advanced training with a, you know, forty-hour rifle school and then quarterly ranges, and we do building entries and that kind of stuff. So they're a little bit more, uh, a little bit more proficient than just, uh, you know, what you would actually go through with a, a pistol, just because you're doing that many more reps. But uh, so not every officer would, carries an AR. No. No, not every officer. I think I think right now I've been out of the program for a while just because how bad my knees have been, but uh, and I haven't taught in a while just because I haven't been able to get away from um, with coverage. But last I I thought we had maybe a hundred, and that's throughout the department. A hundred, hundred twenty-five, including our street crimes unit, our narcs unit. Uh, 100, 125 rifles for a department of 400, not including uh, the SWAT guys. So access to rifles is, it can be spotty. Uh, what about yeah air support? Um, nope. <laughs> and then you said your uh, your tactical uh, units are they're on call, but at five in the morning they're not roaming around. What? Right. Uh, how many patrol guys could you pull at that moment? I think I had four from my district. We had you know our minimums from about two thirty or three o'clock in the morning till eleven. Our minimums per district are four uh, four officers. Uh for some reason, we had day shift was coming in early, and I don't remember. I don't remember why. I, I know those guys came in early, um, mm-hmm. some of them, and they just loaded up and went. And then um, 
you know, being that time of day, we had some detectives that were just on their way to work. So we had, I knew we had at least a couple districts of people coming, you know, my, the Southern district and a couple Northern. I just, I think I just asked for everybody. I'm sure (laughs) anybody, yeah. yeah, Anybody that has a gun, come on down and we'll figure out where to push it. Like I said, at that moment, I was, I was puckered, man. And And this is about five in the morning. Yeah. Okay. So you're set up on the hotel room and this guy who's, who's already called in an ambush on you, he's now he's still inside the room. Your officers weren't, a, weren't uh, righteously so, didn't return fire into the room. That's, is that correct? Correct, because they yeah. had no idea right. what Right, you don't know who else in is in there yeah. and who, what he's, yeah. who he's with, any of those things. So you back off, you set up on the room. You are now uh, the only person on the second floor as your other officer runs to get your rifle. Right. And you have other elements on the, on the ground floor. Um, are they near that stairwell where he could have accessed? Yeah, there was one other officer that ended up coming coming up there. Okay. Um, and I think before, can't remember how quickly she got set, but she got there and started getting around that uh, that stairwell on the ground level. And um, right around that time, after I sent Paul to go get my gun, my rifle, um, I hear Allison and Jason down uh, on the ground level just start giving commands. He just exited. He's out on the balcony right now. Get cover, give command, and get him to stay there. How are you guys? Push by, give him command. So I was on kind of the southern side of that bank, and then I uh, moved to the northern side and rolled the corner, and a uh, bad guy had exited the room and started coming westbound towards me, but had by the time I had uh, turned the corner, I saw his back, and he was running back towards his room, and you know, Allison and Jason were, they were further away than me. Um, they were giving commands and he was not listening. So he came out of the room originally and then fled back in? No, he, uh, he was barricaded in the room for a while. And this was, like I said, a matter of minutes mm-hmm. from the time the shots were fired to the time he poked out of the room. Um, so he came out, started coming westbound. I rolled the corner, saw him. He went back east and then kind of crouched down. So, you know, on the second level of like every hotel ever made that has outdoor hallways, they have like that big rail, that mm-hmm. big metal rail. Mm-hmm. So he kind of came back to where in front of his room and kind of crouched down like a like a catcher would, like in a squat. And uh, so he was kind of bobbing up and down and looked like he was, you know, trying to get a bead on where Jason and Allison were. And they were, like I said, back to my left. And uh, they were quite a ways away. But, you know, bad guys, they – they get lucky. Yeah. So, so he's, he, uh, he had, I could see he had a gun in each hand and I, I, uh, set in my mind. I'm like, okay, I actually, and it's crazy because I talked about it before with, uh, I did one briefing training on this and some people that have asked me like, this was a much different shooting than some other people have had in our department that were very close, very fast guys, you know, fighting for guns, you know, somebody running up behind them with a pipe. Um, very, very different. I remember thinking, okay, if he comes back over that rail again with those guns in his hand, I'm going to shoot him. And he made a bad decision and decided I watched it. And it happens. The slow motion happens. So he started to stand up and bring both guns over the rail. And I took, I had my pistol with me. I took a already out on him and I didn't give any commands because Jason and Allison were. And uh, I took a deep breath and I was like, holy crap, I'm actually going to shoot this guy. He's still on his feet. Northside landing. And fired four rounds and uh, ended up being 46 yards. 
And uh, so he's a you know skinny tweaker, six one, like one fifty, bladed off. And uh, I hit him one out of three. And last I went up to that hotel, you could you could see the group in the uh, the group in the stucco. <laughs> so hit him once. Uh, he dropped the gun or dropped both guns and then ran down that stairwell. So and I remember right after that, right after that, like couldn't have been a couple seconds. Paul comes over and I just see my rifle magically appear over my shoulder. And I was, oh man. So we, uh, said we're on the move. So I'm trying to call out directions and where he went. Come on, he's on the run, going east. Fuck that. Great pressure, going into cover. Guys, stay behind that car. <laughs> he has the gun. Stop, stop, stop. See, the gun is up here. I'm pretty sure I hit. Uh, he ended up hitting, um, got down on the ground level and started heading east. So uh, we stayed on the second level and had like an overwatch. And um, at this point, the cavalry was coming in. So we had a, a couple other sergeants that were, were coming in and directing traffic. And we had a ton of cops that were coming in on foot. And uh, He ended up being they got a motorcycle. He ended up uh, <clears throat> kind of hunkering down in like a little construction area that was east of the uh, east of the hotel. And uh, so the cops and you know, cavalry came and he proned out and they took him into custody and took him to the ambulance, took him to the hospital. So he this, this is something I think that's always interesting is so he, he gets one in the upper torso from you mm-hmm. and yep. still doesn't give up his fight. Right. He, he flees. Yeah, and he, he, he gets he a couple hundred yards away and he runs. Yeah. And there's there's some discussion. I don't the uh, the sergeant that was in uh, our violent crimes unit at the time. He tried to tell me that I missed and that that would ricochet off the rail because um, they, I guess they ended up finding part of the the round or something. But then one of the crime scene guys told me that the reason that the round the round didn't expand is because of his the hollow point uh, was filled up with his he had a hoodie on and filled up with that, so it it hit him but didn't do you know as much damage as it would have. And plus, from forty six yards away, I mean, with a pistol, you're bleeding off a lot of force as opposed to you know shooting him from four yards away. So I don't know. I, I, I didn't miss him. So I don't know what, I don't believe what they said, but there's no way that would be an awful shot. There's no way that I missed, you know, from 46 and hit a rail and it ricocheted like that when you could see the group in the stucco. So yeah, he, uh, he took one to the chest and, and it ended up running and it wasn't until he saw all his blood when he, you know, kind of stopped and, um, wasn't until then that he gave up. So, Suspects in custody at this point. Yep. You're uh, the sergeant who uh, typically is in charge of uh, getting everybody grouped together, figuring out who's shot, getting the emergency exigency questions answered. Um, except in this instance, it's you. Uh, yeah. So what happens? What happens next? Um, it it actually worked pretty fluidly. The lieutenant, um, the lieutenant that I was on the air with um, as we were trying to get this thing figured out in the beginning. He ended up coming down and, uh, you know, he, he took over that whole process because he came down by the time, um, I think he got there either right before or right after dude got in custody. And there was, you know, a couple of the day shift sergeants that had come on, um, detectives were already showing up. So there, and then my boss didn't go to sleep that night because somebody called him. Um, it was a couple hours after I had talked to him, somebody called him and he came back. So he ended up hanging out with me, um, being assigned to me and took me up to our, um, where our uh, investigative uh, folks are housed for the interview. And uh, 
it just moved really, really quickly. So as soon as he was in custody, you know, everybody figured out, so, okay, well, this sergeant's in, involved, so they broke it up quick. And, you know, it's it's not like we're a, we're not a super small agency like that might get into a shooting once every 10 years. I think we've averaged, you know, a couple a year um, for the last however many years, a couple, three. So, um, you know, our folks are pretty squared away, so they jumped on it pretty quick and, um I think they had the command post set up, I don't know, within a half hour, 45 minutes. So what was the first, uh, your first moment alone, um, or where you had a chance to regroup on your own thoughts, what, what went through your mind? Uh, the biggest thing. And one of the things that I tell people that nobody really talks about in police training, they, they may, but not any training that I've been to. And I, uh, I've been able to find kind of articles and stuff here and there. Um, the adrenaline dump, if you think you've had an adrenaline dump before, like somebody almost hits you in a car and all that kind of stuff, that is, it was nothing. I mean, this whole incident from the time that that guy shot at my guys to the time that we had him in custody was about 12 minutes. And so me and Jason and Allison kind of linked up right after, um, right after, uh, he, we had the cops coming to the east side of the hotel. So I got down off the second level. Um, we kind of linked up and we're like the trail search team and then figured out that, you know, they had him. So we kept pushing up until the guy was in handcuffs. And then after that, the dump is absolutely unreal. Like there's nothing you can do to prepare for that. Like maybe some of these guys like, uh, you know, the, like Andy stump, the guy that the, does the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the wingsuits and, you know, military guys. Yeah. It's probably another day in the day in the life for them, but I'd never been in a gunfight before. And so for that, that was, that was something else. What and was then, it? You know, Physi- physiologically, what, what, what happened? Man, I just got just this overwhelming, everything was like super, super tense. And then this overwhelming kind of sense of relief. And then you just, it feels like you're electric, like your skin is, my skin was on fire and it just, it just felt, it just felt weird. I mean, you, I couldn't. I don't think I could stand still and you know, kind of fidgeting and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I my guys were, were there with me and you know, you're not supposed to talk about what happened because, you know, obviously you want to um, preserve the interviews and all that kind of stuff. But it was I'm just happy everybody was alive. But that was the first thing. Um, and then, like I said, since it wasn't kind of like the normal, I don't want to say the normal shooting, but like some of the shootings that we've had and I've read about like the super close, you know, tight quarters and all that. I actually remember after that, I remember going, huh, I didn't really hear the rounds. That was kind of cool. So, yeah, it was just your mind kind of wanders. It was it was just kind of weird. Did you ever uh, – and I, don't, I mean I'm trying to ask this question the right way, but, I mean, in hindsight with all the information you just told us, uh, there, everything about that is a good shoot. Was yep. there ever a moment in that rush and in that adrenaline rush in the seconds afterwards, did you doubt yourself? Nope, never. I never, I knew, I knew when the second that I saw him that I was going to end up shooting him. I was the only one that was in position. He still had guns. I knew that was going to happen. I mean, not for us, not for a second that I doubt that, that I doubt myself. I mean, that wasn't the first, that was the first time that I've been in that situation physically, but that wasn't the first time I've been in that situation mentally. And that's something that I, I tell my guys all the time, like the first time you encounter something shouldn't be the first when you're standing there. You know, I've, uh, 
and somebody uh, brought it up to me when I was in training and I, I liked the way they, they brought it. So, uh, you know, randomly I'll ask some of my guys in briefing, I'm like, Hey, how many times has that circle K been robbed or that convenience store been robbed this month? And they were like, uh, none. Like that thing's been robbed every time I've driven by it this month. Cause when I drive by, I'm thinking, okay, if they call, if the hot tone kicks out right when I'm driving by, what am I going to do? Yep. You know? And so, you know, you try and kind of mentally prepare for as many situations as you can think of. Um, so when you're in that situation, it's not a, it's not a complete culture shock because your heart rate is going to get jacked. And like I said, I, I listened to the audio afterwards. I'm like, man, I was amped, but I was still trying to, you could tell I was amped, but I was still trying to be calm because calm is contagious. And if I'm screaming on the air as the boss, um, man, everybody else is going to freak out too. But if I can get on with my best pilot voice, even though I may be freaking out inside, then, you know, people are going to stay within their means while they're driving to the scene. And right. nobody's going to, nobody's going to wreck and, you know, do something stupid. And, you know, we're, we're all going to get there. You know, I think you, you just hit on something that's extremely important. And I hope that any cop out there and any supervisor reiterates to their people is that idea that the first time you go through something physically shouldn't be the first time you go through it mentally. I think that's a yeah. fantastic advice. Um, so, you, so, you know, you do your interview, you go home, now you've got a whole court process to go through with this idiot. You're, uh, he ends up, what, what, what was that? What was that experience like? Did he, ple- did he plead out? Did he plead not guilty? Did he take a plea? What, what was the deal? Or yeah, they- he uh Yeah, I I wish the process I wish the process with the interview and all that stuff was as quick as as we make it out to be. Like I went up to our uh to our where our detectives are housed and did the interview there. We've changed the process since then. And then came back down and did the walkthrough and met with the uh you know, the county attorney and the county attorney said, "Hey, you know, good shoot and all that stuff." But one thing that I actually took uh, wrote some notes down, but one thing I wanted to to make sure for you folks that haven't been in a shooting that you are going to be one day. Cause that's how you have to look at it. Like expect it every day. They're going to take your gun at some point and they may not have a replacement. And, uh, I've read a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of literature and that, that messes up a lot of people. But yeah. if you know, cause you're naked, you're right. So I still had my secondary on me. So I, I still had a gun and I had a million cops, but you still feel kind of naked cause they, you know, you don't have your gun with you. Um, but if you expect that kind of stuff, it's like, I know they're going to take it and I know there's a chance they may not, you know, the guy who has the backups may not have one. Mm-hmm. So if you know that that's going to be a thing, then it doesn't strike you as hard kind of when it happens. But, um, and, um, oh yeah, one other thing before I actually answer your question. So <laughs> one other thing is, um, you know, they, um, ask if you know you want to call because my uh my wife was in nursing school at the time and she was studying for the boards and uh so she was in class and they asked if i wanted to call her so i had to call her from the sergeant phone not my cell phone because i dropped it but we have a plan so we have uh, like a code phrase like if i ever call her and say you know i have to tell her something that you know went down um you know hey i have something very important to tell you and i need you to listen and that is the phrase and that shuts everything down so I call her and she's like, hey, sweetie, what's going on? Maybe I have something very important to tell you and I need you to listen. Okay. And told her what happened. And she's like, okay, cool. Um, what's next? <laughs> and so one of my one of my buddies that she knows uh, drove up and picked her up and brought her back down. But that's a super important thing that 
instead of just you know calling your spouse or loved one saying uh, I'm okay, but you know if you ask ask them have the conversation like how do you want this information to to come to you because it's going to happen one day. It's just like having kind of a code word uh, when you're out and about you know off duty and something goes down. Mm-hmm. You have to have that code word, and when that is when that is uttered, the plan goes into effect without any question. But anyway, so. I tend to ramble. But yeah, as far as the court process, I wasn't super involved in the court process because um, Jason and Allison were listed as the victims. Um, and technically, in the investigation, I was the, the suspect that was immediately cleared. But um, yeah, I wasn't really privy to much of the, the court process. And you know, they kind of kept me involved. And the original plea that the prosecutors offered this fool was uh, like 10 years. And uh, my guys basically dropped metal fingers, stone cold style, and said, no, that is unacceptable. Uh, if you're going to offer a plea, it's 20. That that is the plea that we want you to offer is 20 years, and uh, he ended up taking it. You mentioned some lessons. What are some of the lessons? Are there other lessons that you learned as a result of this? And also, you mentioned something too in your original story to me about um, issues. You you still had to be a supervisor uh, over this whole thing. But what are some of the uh, what are some lessons and takeaways you've gotten from this? Uh, the biggest thing is, like I said, is to, to be prepared for it. And a lot of these things, it, what, what's the phrase? I think it was Jeff Cooper that you're never going to rise to the occasion. You're only going to default to your level of training. Yeah. And, um, you know, 10,000 reps to, you know, for mastery. So let's say that you're an average officer in an average department and you have to qual 50 round qual once a year. And let's say that every year you fail the first qual and pass on the second qual. Uh, so over the course of 20 years, if my math is right, that's 2,000 rounds. Mm-hmm. And that's just pulling the trigger on paper. And I can teach anybody to pull the trigger on paper, but what we actually are doing when we're you know, doing the firearms training is we're, we're teaching you how to make a decision. And so you don't actually need to go out there and, and fire. And I'm not saying that shooting isn't important because it's in, an invaluable tool. And the only reason I was able to make a 46-yard shot um, I didn't think it was that far at the time. Uh, I thought it was like 30 or 35, but you know, they came back and told me later it was 46 yards. The only reason I had been able to do that is because I had put in time at the range. Um, when we were out on the rifle range, we had steel down at the, you know, down by the targets and at lunch I just grab my pistol and go out and plink from 50 and go out and plink from a hundred. If you can put a pistol round on a steel target at a hundred, how much confidence do you have in your ability? Sure. And so I, I was, you know, very confident that I, I didn't even think really about the yardage. It wasn't until they asked me afterwards, but it's that kind of stuff. So you have to have the the mechanical ability, but you also have to have the decision-making skills and know, you know, when you're justified in doing something, you know, run yourself through scenarios, listen to hot traffic in other districts. Um, how would you, especially as a supervisor, how would you run that? Yeah, for sure. Debrief people. You know, we had an officer in our department that had, was involved in I think six or seven shootings in, uh, you know, of course, the media loved them, but uh, I talked yeah. to them about all those shootings, and there are some very interesting takeaways. Hmm. So, you know, it's the mental preparation, I think, was is the biggest thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then just you can't count on your department to give you all the training that you need. Uh, you know, read Police Run, read Caliber uh, Police One, the website, and read uh, Caliber Press, and, you know, go to the street survival seminars and soak up as much training as you can, because now you start looking at things from different perspectives. Um, a big thing for me was, uh, you know, kind of reading the, the military based books, um, that really puts shit in perspective. Like you think you're having a bad day, (laughs) you know, I, at no point 
in my shooting did I ever have to go through like a 36-hour gun battle and then run a mile behind a tank to get out of a city that was coming down on me. I never had to do that. So that puts things in perspective about how bad of a day you're having. And there's a ton of people out there, Garrett, that are listening to this that have been in way hairier situations than me. Um, and those folks, they, they debrief them. They talk about them. Sometimes, sometimes there's a debriefing that comes out and, um, you had, you know, you keep your eyes open and, and, and seek that information out because now you can put yourself in that situation and, and, and hopefully when these folks are being honest and they usually are, they tell you about their mistakes. And so, you, you know, you put that in the back of your mind and, and, uh, hopefully that preparation is enough because it's, it's hard to think, um, and taking that deep breath and, and actually being, you know, a lot of this is a mental game, but being able to be physically fit enough that you're not completely, you know, your heart rate's not at 220, and now you're trying to give, you're trying to set a perimeter as a supervisor, or you couldn't get there in the first place because there's a six foot wall that you're going to have to jump. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those things, you know, the the mental preparation and the physical preparation, and you know, taking training seriously and seeking out stuff on your own, and it doesn't have to be expensive, you know, super cool training. Although that is fun, it sometimes it's just, you know, on your drive in, you know, telling yourself, okay, today's the day. Where's the shooting going to be? Okay, it's going to be at this intersection. Uh, if it's on a traffic stop, how am I going to call? How am I going to call people in? And what am I going to do? And so it's it's that mental prep. I think I think that's that's one of the biggest takeaways. Is um, I was I I was ready for it, even though it you know definitely puckered me up. I think I was ready for it. I think we ended up doing a pretty damn good job. Sounds like it. I mean, you you brought up my last question to you, which was in hindsight and with which is a gift, right? I mean, it's it's oh, yeah. we can use it to learn. Um, so not at the time necessarily, but in hindsight, do you feel like you there were any mistakes you made either before, oh, during, yeah. or after? Yeah, I think there were plenty. Um, again, the. Uh, um, trying to evacuate the rooms. I, 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 I thought it was a good idea looking back on it. I don't know. Like that was a, that was a, um, kind of a spur of the moment. Um, but I don't know if I would necessarily change it. Mm. I, I don't know if it was necessarily the best idea. Like that's just one of those things that you're going to have to trust your gut. And, uh, so I think that was, I think, uh, communication in any critical incident, I think communication can always be better. Um, we had an issue. If you listen to the audio, um, um, somebody's emergency key kept keying up because, uh, the microphone had come off, uh, her shoulder. And so she kept trying to grab the mic and, you know, get information out, but hit the emergency key, which would block everybody else out for 10 seconds. So, you know, that, I think that kind of, uh, that kind of hampered the communication, but I don't know if I really recognized it as much at the time. So, if I, I think if I would have recognized that, I would, you know, we could have set stuff up a little bit better and directing people in because we had people go into a different hotel. So, but damn, man, everything happens so fast that it's, yeah. you know, you, you, you mentally prepare and physically prepare as best you can. And then you do your best when it comes out. And if you make a mistake and, um, you can correct it, correct it. And I've told the people that I work with that I'm probably going to say dumb things on the air. Um, I'm probably there. There may be a time where I come up with a plan that is not the best plan. And I would really appreciate it if you get on the air and say, Hey, how about this? And, 
you know, on the other calls, you know, we've, we've had that, you know, I come up with, Hey, we're going to set up here, here and here. Somebody will get on, you know, Hey Sarge, but I'm over here. Let's try and do this, this, and this. And I've said it straight up on the radio. That is a much better plan. We're doing that. I'm coming to you. So that ego has to take a check, but yeah, it's, um, knowing kind of what to expect with these things that, like I said, we don't necessarily teach people to do like a lot of the scenarios that, you know, cops run is, you know, you do an active shooter scenario and then you neutralize the threat and then the scenario is over. Well, mm-hmm. now what, you know, now, right. uh, how are you going to put a guard on that guy and start, you know, triaging people? You know, how are you going to bring medical in? You know, have you figured out where your staging area is going to be, especially if you're the supervisor that's kind of like inside the actual incident, you're the one that's going to be directing people in until somebody of higher rank or smarter than you takes over. And hopefully it's both. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, but like I said, the, the biggest thing for me, the biggest takeaways that I try to pass on to people is, you know, figuring out these other things, like knowing the, you know, knowing what that adrenaline dump is going to do. And that, you know, next time you have to go to the bathroom, it's, it smells like battery acid and looks like Gatorade that would have surprised the crap out of me had I not read that somewhere. And, uh, you know, had a, a sergeant who promoted and then has since retired, he texted me, and he was in a gnarly, gnarly um, knockdown, drag out, three cops on one, uh, fighting a guy over a gun in a probation office. And, you know, I remember him telling me that he looked down the barrel of that gun, and it was it was huge, and he ended up basically doing a contact shot on the guy. And he, he texted me, he's like, you're going to have nightmares, they will go away, you know, just let it, you know, let yourself work through it. Um, and again, if, if he hadn't told me that, that, that might've messed me up, but kind of expecting these things. Oh, I also fun note. I also got the bill for our bad guy for his hospital ride uh-huh. or his uh, ambulance ride to the hospital. Somebody enter office it to me and put it on my desk. Was it made out to you? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. We've uh, had that happen it had, too. It had bad guy's name on it, and it was somebody wrote, you know, care of Sergeant Berkmeyer and put it on my desk. And I came in, you know, I was only gone for a week, which, again, hindsight, don't come back in three days. Come If your department gives you the option, take more time because I came back way too fast because I had a bunch of new officers and I was a new sergeant and I thought that I had to be the rock to, you know, to be back quickly. And I probably should have taken at least another couple days. But, yeah, that uh, I brought that to my lieutenant. I'm like, it's a good thing that I'm okay with this because if this would have messed me up more, um, this may have sent me over the edge. Yeah, but yeah, the other lessons is uh, talking, talk to people, talk to your spouse, like let them know what you're going through and and your feelings. And uh, I'm fortunate that you know my wife, her uh, stepdad was a Phoenix cop for 26 years, and um she was a dispatcher and that's how we met and she's a nurse now and she's worked in ICU and you know, she's, she gets it. And, but we have these conversations and I tell her how I'm feeling and it's, you know, you're, I don't think you're going to impress anybody by holding everything in. You know, if you don't, if you don't talk about it, that's when stuff starts to play. That's when really you know stuff starts to play with your mind. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I've been, I've been fortunate or unfortunate enough to, see a lot of bad shit like I'm sure that you have and every other cop out there everybody has stories and um just going home and pounding a few beers and then trying to go to bed and getting 4 hours of sleep and coming back to work that's not going to get it done like if you have you know trusted people you can talk to somebody on your team or you know if you have a critical incident um stress 
management team like we do. Like, you know, we have to go to those after every shooting. And the last, uh, one of the last deaths we had was like a five-year-old that um, they called it in and did it in our briefing. Um, and just talk, you know, it's, that's one of those things that I, I think that that's finally been broken down in law enforcement, that people are more willing to talk, but we're still type A and, you know, yeah. hey, nothing bothers me. That's that's crap, man. A lot of stuff bothers me. I see a lot of people's faces, but I can get through my day and it doesn't it doesn't uh, cripple me. Right. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I can talk to folks about it. And I can tell them that there's no shame in saying that I'm I'm tired of seeing dead people. You know, um, I'm sick of it. It's it sucks. There's a lot of people that that died before they should have for whatever reason, be it you know medical issues that they did to themselves or violent crime and Ah, it wears on you, but you can manage it and you can deal with it and you can put it in a box and be healthy with it instead of just trying to keep it to yourself and then you break one day. Well, Rick, I think uh, you know you talked about the importance of debriefing and like I mentioned, you're the you're the first in this new kind of uh, style of episode um, where that's exactly what I'm hoping we do here, right? We we debrief yeah. these with people, we talk about them, we find people. Who, who are brave enough and strong enough and confident enough to be willing to talk about their experience so that others who are listening can either do one of two things. They can learn from it for the time for when it comes to be their turn, or uh, they realize that when they went through their experience, they're not alone. Right. And I think being open and honest and you approached this whole episode with zero ego, man. And I appreciate you uh, sharing both the wins and the, and the, and the maybe the not quite so wins or the fails yeah. <laughs> of, of what you can do as a leader, right? And and I think we going very back to the very beginning of this episode when we talked about the difference between supervision, management, and leadership. Um, you just described a real leader to me there who uh, you know is not who who doesn't bring their ego to work with them, who who listens when someone else has a better plan, and who is is self aware enough to realize uh, their participation in their own in their own result. Right. So, uh, thanks for being on. Thanks for sharing that story. It's, it's a, it's a good one. It really is. And there's a lot to learn from just talking to you about it. And, um, I hope that hearing that other people hearing you talk about it here makes it okay for them to talk, not, not to, not on a podcast with, you know, thousands (laughs) of people listening, but, uh, at least to their wife, like you talk, like you said, or their husband or their squad, or the new guy that just went through something and they can, they can break down their own wall and go talk to them. I think, I think you do a lot of good service by sharing that man. And I thank you for being willing to do it with us today. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I mean, the whole reason that, uh, that I kind of started the the whole 40 caliber thing with the Instagram was, you know, that I, I kind of want to do my part. You know, I've, I've seen probably more than some folks and a lot of folks have seen more than me, but we're not really, you know, kind of talking about, you know, how to prepare for it and, you know, at least on, especially that's kind of what we focus on is the physical side, right? It's the, you know, third leading cause of, uh, officer deaths is heart attacks. So we're getting that kind of information and, and being willing to, to talk about these things. I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to, you know, I didn't email you with the, the hopes of, Oh my God, look at me. I'm so important. I just, I, I thought that I had something to offer and hopefully somebody can glean something. So when it's their turn, they do it better. And then they, can kind of pass that on to the next people, even if it isn't a podcast five years from now, and then a whole bunch of other people can learn. And now our circle just gets bigger. And now in 20 years, how much did we strengthen our community? 
and that's really what it's all about. That's a legacy. It's, you know, I'm, I'm going to be gone from law enforcement in however many years. Nobody's going to remember my name or badge number, but somewhere, maybe three generations down, somebody's going to kind of share a story that maybe, you know, some new guys listened to this herd and then they were able to take it three more steps when they're a lieutenant and they change the way things are in their entire department. So that's, we're just little cogs, man, trying to make things better. Absolutely. hundred percent, man. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you, Garrett. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks to Sergeant Rick Burkmeyer for coming on the show. Really appreciate uh, him willing to talk about that, his openness with it. Obviously, everything's been adjudicated, so there's no confidentiality issues or anything like that. It's been cleared by his PIO, et cetera. So he's good to go. Um, if you f- want to follow us, you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at The Squad Room. If you want to follow uh, Rick, he's on Instagram at 40 Caliber Fitness. Um, 40 Caliber Fitness. Uh, you can check out his podcast as well. And um, if you want to join our mailing list, you could do that from our web- website, thesquadroom.net, or you can just text the squadroom, all one word, to 44222, and you can get signed up from the palm of your hand. Now, if you don't want to do any of that and you don't want to do uh, have anything to do with that or uh, you've already done those things and you're part of this community already, we appreciate that and thank you. But if you want to do something to help support the show, which you can really do, of course, that Audible trial I mentioned at the beginning of the show, but you can also go to iTunes and leave an honest review of the show. Let us know what you think. Help us share it with others. It gets us in front of more people who need to hear this message. Our uh, audience is growing by the day, uh, but it really, really is important to get good reviews of the show uh, and get that in front of people. So if you found value in this episode or any other episode, please consider going to iTunes or your podcast player of your choice, whether that's Google Play or Stitcher or Uh, tune in and uh, leave a review of the show. Uh, We would uh, uh, appreciate that very much. Until next time, please take care of each other and stay safe.